Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. Thank you so much for coming and worshiping here this morning. I just wanted to say hello. We're glad that you're here. If you're a guest, uh, we're super thankful that you're here. I'm away today with our elders, and we're on a prayer retreat. Uh, you know, we launched this, this new year, a brand new prayer initiative we're doing as a church, and we're asking God to speak to us. We want to hear from Him. We want to listen to what His leading is. We've always prayed as a church. We don't want to get ahead of Him, and we don't want to fall behind Him, and so we're trying to be attentive to that. And so I'm away with the elders. We're praying for you right now as you meet and uh, seeking God's guidance and leading as we move forward in this new year. And today you're in store for a special treat. Uh, my mentor, the guy who led me to Jesus Christ, Mike Thomas, is going to be our speaker. I've mentioned him before. He's never been on the stage before, but he's really a part of the spiritual legacy of our church. And he's taught me almost everything I know about prayer. He's taught me how to pray specifically. He's taught me how to pray boldly. He's taught me how to pray faithfully when sometimes it feels like God's saying no or wait. And I believe you're going to be blessed by what he has to say about prayer this morning. So why don't we give him a big Southbridge welcome and Mike, come on up here and bring the word. Good morning, Southbridge. You know what hyperbole is? Exaggeration? That was hyperbole. <clears throat> hey, I want to start out today because the elders and the worship team are right now meeting and they're planning and they're praying for the future of this church. So I think we're going to talk about prayer. Let's start by praying for them. Let's do that right now. <clears throat> God in heaven, thank you for your grace. Thank you for what has brought everyone here today. Thank you, God, that you brought people here specifically to hear the words that will be shared as we have prayed. And God, I pray for the elders and the leadership team. God, I pray that your spirit would right now spark them to depths of spiritual uh, growth that they've never thought of. And God, I pray you would give them vision that they could never see for this church. And God, I pray that you would empower them to encourage others here and change the future of South Baptist Church and the city of Raleigh. Would you do that, God, right now as we pray? And God, everything that I say today, I pray you would control. I pray you would not let me say anything that wouldn't honor you. And I pray, Father, for the people that are here, that you brought here to hear these words, that you would be glorified throughout in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Whenever I teach, I ask God during the week, give me a life example that will apply to what I'm going to speak about. <clears throat> and he did that this week. See, the first draft of the five drafts of this message, um, I had a section on sovereignty, and I took it out. And God wanted it back in. So it's, it's back in. <clears throat> and um, I'm going to give you six principles today about prayer, and then give you a challenge. And I'm going to give you principle number one, and then we're going to talk about what God did to bring that principle here today. Principle number one, for prayers to be effective, we must recognize that God is sovereign. Why is that important? 
Because if we don't recognize God's sovereignty, when we have any kind of a crisis, we're going to get mad, or we're going to get afraid, or we're going to get irritated, or we're going to run off and start doing things on our own that have nothing to do with the purpose for which God placed us in that crisis, because we don't recognize it came from God. God controls everything. Thursday before this last Thursday, I was outside taking down the outside Christmas decorations. We had an unusually warm day in Michigan, and my back was stiffening up, and I should have stopped, and I didn't, so it was a little sore. And the next day, we had a snowstorm, and it was frigid cold. You guys don't even know what it's like. But So I was outside blowing snow and shoveling out of spot for the dogs so they don't disappear when they go out the back door. Um, and I hurt my back, and it really hurt. So Sue was leaving Saturday to drive down to watch the girls uh, while John and Nikki were away. And um, she gave me strict instructions before she left. Do not move any snow while I'm gone. Okay. So she left. It snowed Sunday. And it snowed Monday all day. And Monday all night. And Tuesday all day. Until 7 o'clock Tuesday night. And I have the cleanest driveway in the block. And I couldn't take it anymore. So I went outside and I blew all the snow off and I shoveled a spot for the dogs. And then I saw there was ice underneath and I saw I was chipping ice off the driveway. And at 3.30 Tuesday morning, I woke up in intense pain. I'm flying down Thursday morning to Southbridge, well, to John and Nikki's, and then I was going to speak here. That was the plan, so I'd see the girls for a couple days. So I iced my back, and I struggled into work because I had appointments all day. And at 10 o'clock, I got a text message. Your Thursday morning flight, 6 a.m., canceled because there's a snowstorm in Raleigh. And I thought, an inch of snow. That's what I thought. (laughs) But I was wrong. (laughs) So I got through the day, got home, And it wasn't long after I got home. The pain in my back became so intense that I started shaking. I got nauseous. And I I said, oh man, I I can't, I don't know what to do. So I went down to the local clinic we have on the next block. And they gave me a shot of steroid and they gave me some, you know, cortisone pills to take. And uh, I went home and I was a little bit better but I was still in great pain. And my instruction said, do not lie down or sit for extended periods of time. (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to stand up tonight sleeping. (laughs) So I didn't get much sleep that night. And Thursday morning, there is no way in the world I could have gotten on a plane and flown down here. No way. And God knew that. So he brought a snowstorm to Raleigh. (laughs) to cancel my flight. Sorry. I should have listened to my wife. Now, I mean, we laugh about that, but think of this. Millions of lives were affected by that snowstorm. Your lives were affected by that snowstorm. Maybe you had time to spend with your family that you haven't had in a while. Maybe you did stuff together like make a snowman. Maybe your neighbors needed some help and you got a chance to help your neighbors and have a chance to show them the love of Christ. Millions of people were affected by that snowstorm. 
and me. Can you imagine the sovereignty of a God who can control all of that? And we have to. Because that's where we start with prayer. God controls everything. Nothing happens to us. I've told my kids this many times. Nothing can happen to you today that hasn't been sifted through God's hand and is for your good. And that's the truth. We're going to look at some prayer situations today in the Bible. and I'm going to relate how they have applied to my life journey. And I think they'll apply to yours. <clears throat> Let's look at um, John 16, 23 through 24. <clears throat> I'm going to set the stage for you here. Sorry, I'm gun shy. I want to make sure they're up there. Um, John took 21 chapters to describe the life of Jesus. <clears throat> and he said he left out a lot of things in 2031. He said, I left out a lot. Six of those chapters, 30% of that, describes one single night of Christ's life, the night before he died. Now, if we read anything in chapters 13 through 18, we should pay attention to it because it's God's last-minute instruction, Jesus' last-minute instruction on, to the disciples on the enormous task they were going to have, which is now our task. So here in John 16, he's told the disciples, I'm going to leave, I'm coming back, and they, they didn't really get it. So listen to this, and I'm going to ask you a question. So also you now, you have sorrow now, but I'll see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father, in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So here's my question. What does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? From the time I was saved, when I was ten and a half years old, 1959, <clears throat> I have prayed in Jesus' name, amen. I mean, that's what I was always taught to do. That's what everybody around me did, so I just picked it up. And I didn't particularly know or question why I was saying that but I was saying it for the wrong reasons. Here's what Jesus meant. He said, look, you've had to pray nothing in my name at this point, in my place at this point, because I'm here, but I'm leaving. So whatever you pray in my place, whatever you pray that I would pray, God will answer that. Whatever you pray that I would pray. Now, here's the question that I asked. What did Jesus pray? Well, let's look at that. <clears throat> John 17, 4 and 5. Here's Christ in chapter 17. This is the true Lord's Prayer. This is what he prayed the night before he was crucified. And you'll notice something about these verses. I'll help you notice it. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Christ's main purpose for coming to earth was to glorify God. And that's principle number two for us. The basis for our prayers must be that God is glorified. 
Now, if we just uh, go a couple chapters back to John eleven forty through 42, let me give you the backdrop of this, and then we'll read the verses and then see how this applies to us. Jesus had been notified that Lazarus was very sick, and he purposely waited two more days before he left to go see him. When he, it was a two-day journey. When he got there, he's dead four days. And he's been talking to Mary and Martha. They're heartsick. They're a little disappointed that he didn't get there. And now he's standing in front of the tomb. And John just has said Jesus wept. And he's talking to Martha. Did I not tell you if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father... I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me and you will be glorified. That's what he meant. I don't have to say these words aloud to you, God. I already asked you. I know you've heard me and I know I'm going to bring Lazarus out. But I'm saying these words so the people standing around will get it. Paul adds to Jesus' admonition, telling us not to worry. And he puts that in the context of prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, if you're looking. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto man. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. <clears throat> so what's Paul saying there? You don't have to worry about anything, but be thankful and pray. He says in Colossians 4, 2 through 4, be thankful and pray. He says in 1 Thessalonians, in everything, give thanks. So you got to be thankful when you're praying. Sometimes that's hard, and I'm going to share that with you in a minute, how hard that can be. <clears throat> but what's the result of that? Don't be anxious, don't worry, but with thanksgiving, ask God about your problem and the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will be yours. Your emotion and your intellect will all be at peace. Now, I've often wondered, what does incomparable, incomprehensible peace feel like? And I found out on July 2nd, 2016. July 1st, John and Nikki and the girls had just arrived in Michigan and we were going to make the two-hour trek up to the lake house and spend uh, 4th of July week. <clears throat> and um, Sue had a doctor's appointment. She had a, a mass and, um, and the doctor thought it was benign and he did some blood tests and he was going to do an ultrasound. So she was going to see him in the morning. Nikki and John had some local friends coming over. So I went out of the office for a little while. And I came home, and here's John and Nikki and Sue standing in the kitchen. And I said, hey, did you get your blood test back? And the dark stairs told me the answer. Sue said, um, my blood tests all came back off the charts for ovarian cancer. And the doctors have scheduled an appointment with an oncological surgeon at Henry Ford Hospital. And then I had to leave to drive up north by myself. That two-hour drive, here's what went through my mind. 
Now, these are not thoughts that relate to the sovereignty of God, but this is what I thought. What am I going to do, God, if I lose my wife? She's the center of everything in my life. I don't have any social life without my wife. My wife plans everything. She does all the family stuff. She does all the cooking. She schedules vacations. She does everything. I will not have any family without my wife. And then I bet I said 500 times because I said it over and over and over as I drove. God, please don't take my wife. Please don't take my wife. July 2nd, I was praying, trying to thank God, which I knew was the right thing to do. And God brought to mind a principle that I've always taught my kids. And we're, I'm going to show it to you. Crisis is always an opportunity for God to be glorified. So when you're in a crisis, it isn't about you. It's about God. Glorify Him. And at that moment, I recognized this was an assignment from God for us to glorify Him. Now, I wished I could change who was having to go through the trouble. But it was an assignment. And from that moment on, I did not worry about cancer. I prayed with Sue at night, God, we're going to witness to everybody we see. We're going to share the gospel with everybody we meet. We're going to honor you. And I told Susie, I'm so sure you're going to be okay <clears throat> that I'm going to book our Hawaii timeshare for January. July 29th, Sue had an eight-hour surgery, lost a kidney, Resection colon had a hysterectomy. It was a very serious surgery. And they diagnosed her with stage 3C ovarian cancer. Now that's like stage 4. It's just in the tissue except in an organ. No difference in my mind. It's metastasized. <clears throat> no one would admit it was a pretty bleak situation. Doctors offered us 18 weeks of chemo with a double dose every other week. And she only had one kidney. <clears throat> People were telling me, they'd say to me at church, at the office, you must be an emotional wreck over this. And I said, well, no, I'm not. Because I had incomprehensible peace. Like God promised. <clears throat> so, um, lest you take my lack of... Uh, concern, mistake that for lack of caring. I spent a hundred hours researching alternative treatments for Sue. And God led us to a place in Arizona after one month her not being sick one day her markers were all normal. They recognize this comes back so she's been in follow-up treatments and she's fine and we went to Hawaii in January. Now the point of all this is recognizing God's sovereignty gave me incomprehensible peace. And I can't even believe that I had that. Nikki set up a, a, a um, Caring Bridge website and, and some of you visited that, I'm sure. And it's just a site where I file reports and then people get an email that, hey, there's a report on Susie and then they can go look at the report. 
Now, we had a lot of unsaved people looking at the website. 5,000 visits, over 5,000 visits to that website. And every one of those reports, if you read them, glorifies God. That's the purpose. We have to recognize God's sovereign, and we're here to glorify him. We can learn another principle from uh, the prayers of Jesus. Throughout the New Testament, and I really don't have time, and I know I don't because my first draft was over 55 minutes, and I know I don't have time to tell you all this, but if you look through the New Testament, you will see when Jesus is healing someone, he prays. And what's he ask God? Hey, God, let's heal this guy. He asks a specific thing of God. In John 11, he asked a specific thing. In John 17, he asked a specific thing. What did he ask there? Well, if you read on in John 17, you see where he asks that God will save us. It's there. Now, I've often troubled, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but it bothers me when people are praying and they say, oh, bless them, or bless the missionaries, or lead, guide, and direct us. How's God going to get any glory out of that? How do you know he even answers the prayer? It's so general. I'm going to show you later. You can have confidence to ask specifically, and God will answer specifically. Then you know he answered. Then he gets the glory. And you see he's sovereign. See how it all goes together? I'll give you an example from my life. About 12 years ago or so, I lose track of time now that I'm where I'm at. Um, <clears throat> I was coming home at lunchtime riding my Airdyne bike, and uh, I got done one day in the, just all sweaty, and the doorbell rang, and I ran upstairs and looked on the porch, and there's a young guy in khakis and a blue uh, sports shirt, and I opened the door, and he said, Hi, my name is Tom. I'm from the Kirby Vacuum Cleaner Company. Could I give you a demonstration? I said, Oh, Tom, I'm sorry. You got the wrong guy here. You need to have my wife here. You know, all I know about a vacuum is you turn the switch and push it. So I'm the wrong guy. I'm sorry, Tom. So he walked away kind of dejectedly, and he was just out of sight, and it dawned on me. You idiot! God sent him here to get the gospel, and you didn't give it to him. I was so disappointed with myself, and I said, God, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please, if you give me another opportunity like this, I won't miss it. The next day, I was home riding my Airdyne. Got done, I was all sweaty. Doorbell rang. I ran upstairs. There's a young lady standing on the porch. There's an old beat-up van in the driveway with a young man, I can presume her husband or boyfriend. And I opened the door, and before I could say a word, she blurted this out. Hi, my name is Angel. I'm from the Kirby Vacuum Cleaner Company, and I get $25 if I can give you a demonstration. Can I please give you a demonstration? Well, that's all the information I needed, so I said, Angel... I've been praying for you to come to my door. Come on in. So she got one foot in the door, but she held onto the screen to make a fast getaway. So I ran down the hall, got 25 bucks out of my wallet and a gospel tract. And I ran back and I said, Angel, I don't have time for a demonstration, but look, let's pretend you gave me a demonstration. Here's $25. Well, I can't take that. I said, no, no, you have to take it. I prayed for you to come. This is for you. Okay, and I said, but I have something more valuable than that. I must give it to you. 
It tells you how to have eternal life, how to get to heaven. Wouldn't you like to know that? Well, yeah. Okay, take this. Please read it. So she walked off the porch, still kind of bewildered, and she got in a van, and I saw her slide across the seat and start going through the tract with her boyfriend or husband. And I walked down the hall toward the shower, and I just looked up at the ceiling, and I said, Angel, really? God, you are so funny. And he is. He, is, he has humor sometimes when he answers a specific prayer. I'll tell you another time that occurred well, maybe 10 days before Nikki was born. I just started my law practice in 1997, and I have it a habit of I would take a draw. I didn't have much money coming in. I'd take a draw every week so we could pay bills. And at the end of the month, I would add up what we brought in. I would subtract my draws, and then I would tithe on the, that amount of money that was left. And that's so I was tithing on the gross before I paid any bills. <clears throat> in 1970, 1977, the uh, month of November ended on a Wednesday. So Thursday, I added up everything that came in and uh, subtracted what I took out and got my tithe amount. Then I looked in my checkbook. Friday was payday. I had enough money to pay the church or my unsaved secretary, Connie, but I couldn't do both. I was immediately troubled. And I thought, wow, man, what do I do here? I, 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 I owe this money to God. I've committed. I'm giving this money to God, but this is an unsafe secretary. What's she going to think if, if God can't provide for her salary? I didn't know what to do, so I went home troubled. I didn't tell Sue. She had just quit work. Nikki was due in a couple weeks, actually. <clears throat> and so I prayed. And I'm thinking, okay, God's going to tell me what to do. I got nothing. So the next morning I got up, read my Bible, and I prayed. And I got nothing. So now I'm driving to work. And I have WMPC Christian Radio on, and Radio Bible Class, Our Daily Bread broadcast came on. It's a five-minute devotional in the morning. And the passage this particular day was Mark 12, 41 through 44. Now, I know Scott's preached on this before because I read all of his sermons. And here's what it says. They read it. <clears throat> Christ sat in the temple across from the treasury. Now, let me explain what that is. If you study the configuration of the temple... When you come into the temple, there's the court of Gentiles, and that's where the money changers' temples were, and non-Jews could be there. Then you go up some stairs to the court of women, and that's where Jewish men and women could be. Then you, at the, you go through there, and there's the court of men, up some stairs to the court of men. Right at the entrance of the court of men, right at the end of the court of women, was the treasury. There were 13 uh, vials that are shaped like a trumpet. They called them the trumpets. <clears throat> And Jews would come in and put their temple offerings in to support the various services in the temple. And that's where Christ was sitting, watching. He watched as many rich people put in much money. And then a widow came in and put in two mites, two sixty-fourths of a penny. And Jesus told his disciples, this widow put in more than all the rich people putting in all their money, for she put in all she had. All she has to live on. Then the announcer said, 
This lady might have had children to feed. She certainly had to take care of herself and have a place to live. And she took everything she had and gave it to God and trusted him to take care of all the other things. Now I'm pulling into the parking lot by now, the office, and I'm waiting, waiting for this guy to say, did you get that, Mike? I mean, that was just like he's broadcasting to me. So I walked in. And I said to Connie, Connie, write a check to South Baptist Church for X dollars and we will see what happens. Now she knew what that meant, no check for her. About 10.30, the mail would come every day, just like clockwork. And Connie would open it, put it on a tray, and she'd bring it in and set it on my desk. And then I would look at it sometime. So she brought the tray in that day and she set it down, this is Friday. And she stood there. And I said, can I help you? She says, I'd like you to look at your mail. I said, I will. She says, I want you to look at it now. (laughs) Okay. So I slid the tray across the desk, and I couldn't help but notice a little stack of checks on top. Now, back then, to get a check a day, that was great. To get a stack of checks, never happened. Had never happened. So I started flipping through the checks and adding them up as I went, and I began to cry. Because there in that stack was more money in one day than I'd ever received in an entire week. $637. I remember the exact amount. I looked up at Connie. She was crying. And I said, well, you can literally thank God for your check today. And she said, (laughs) she said, I know. And as she walked away, I thanked God. And it dawned on me. Hey, I had enough money to pay Connie, to pay God, and to pay me. Hadn't thought about that, but God had. He goes way beyond what you pray, if you ask specifically. And I had money left over. Specific prayers bring specific answers. Now, uh, I don't have time to go through this whole parable, but in Luke 18... We have the parable of the persistent widow or the unjust judge, depending on what what your point of view is. And the um, widow, this judge wasn't going to give her what she deserved and she bugged him and bugged him and bugged him and bugged him and bugged him until he finally said, okay, I give up. The point Jesus was trying to make in the parable was don't lose heart. Keep praying. And here's what he says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Cry to him day and night. Now in Hebrews, the writer tells us about Jesus praying. Let's look at Hebrews 5, 7. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his fear of God or reverence for God. So what's the point? The point is, we're to pray with persistence and with passion. When Nikki was eight and Jack was five, I began praying eight things for them every day. 
I prayed that God would cause them to love him more than they love me. Low bar on the first thing. Then I asked them to ask God to um, give them a burden for the lost, a hunger for the word, to protect them from their peers, to uh, uh, prepare a spouse to take them to the highest spiritual potential, to keep them pure until they met that spouse. And if God would be pleased to use them in full-time ministry, that he would do that and to save my unborn descendants. I was praying for Addie 27 or 28 years before she got saved. But when Jack was 17, I was troubled. Junior in high school, <clears throat> he, he just didn't seem to have a passion or any kind of a deep interest in God. That troubled me. And I remember going into our little sitting room and kneeling down on the, uh, at the uh, love seat and literally crying to God. And I never told Sue this even. I just cried to God. I said, God, what have I done wrong? I've tried to do everything as a parent that I think you tell me to do. I've shown Jack to be serious about the word. I've showed him how it impacts people's lives. He's watched me bring people to Christ. He's seen passion. <clears throat> But he has no interest. Forgive me, God. Please show me what I've done wrong. And God, please, change his attitude. Please save Jack for service to you. Would you please do that? And I got up crying. The next afternoon, I get a phone call from Cedarville. Scott Lear. Scott says, hey, Mr. T, guess what? I says, what? I'm going to be the youth intern at South Baptist this summer. And I says, oh, Scott, that's great. He says, yeah, but um, can you do me a favor? And I said, sure, what do you need? <clears throat> Would you mind if I discipled Jack? No, no, that'd be great. <laughs> a month after Scott got here, <clears throat> I noticed a significant difference in Jack. He actually wanted to read his Bible. He wanted to hang around Scott all the time, and Scott was just a dynamo, as you know. So in a quiet moment, I caught Scott, and I said, Scott, what, what are you teaching Jack? And he looked at me kind of surprised, and he said, what do you mean? I'm teaching him what you taught me. Scott spent 70 weeks studying the Bible with me after he was saved, and it's all circling back. Do you want your kids to love God and serve him, ask God every day. Persistence and passion. And you know what? I pray those eight things now for your pastor's kids and my pastor's kids. Eight things every day. And if you know Nikki, you know how that turned out. When Jesus died and rose again, he created something for us that didn't exist before that. He created a direct pipeline to God. Let's look at Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence, some uh, 
Um, translations say boldness. Then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. <clears throat> now we have a need. Oftentimes it's a crisis. Sometimes it's not. Well, if we're asking for mercy and grace, what does that do? Mercy is the withholding of something bad that we deserve. Grace is the giving of something good that we don't deserve. Well, that's a great thing to pray, isn't it? God, give me your grace and mercy knowing what that means. In any situation, cry out to God. We have confidence he's going to hear us. Confidence. Now, that isn't abrasiveness because we have to pray humbly. Christ prayed humbly. And I didn't have time to put that in, but you pray with humility. But we pray with confidence. We actually believe what we're praying. You ever notice when kids, kids pray, they believe what they're praying. And oftentimes, we don't. So principle number five is we can confidently ask God for grace and mercy in the time of need. My last example is going to be from Scott's life. When Scott was, I don't know what he was, a junior or senior at at Cedarville, and I heard him preach this in a sermon. I knew part of the story, but I didn't know until I heard him preach this in a sermon. And I think it was at Prestonwood, but he said part of it here. So bear with me if you've heard part of this. Scott was at Dr. Blumenstocks, who's the evangelism prof at Cedarville. And uh, Scott for dinner, this was a Friday night, he's with Shanna, and he said, Doc, I, my dad's saved, parents are divorced, my mom doesn't seem to have any interest, I'm really concerned about her soul. And he said, well, Scott, you have to get to the point where you pray, God, whatever it takes, save my mom. Whatever it costs, save my mom. So they left, and Scott helped Shanna into her door, and then he was walking around the back of the car, and he nonchalantly this is his words. He nonchalantly looked up at the sky and he said, God, do whatever it takes to save my mom. <clears throat> now I'm going to have Scott tell the story from this point on. <clears throat> the next morning, it was Saturday, the, my phone rang at 7 o'clock. And I thought, whoever's calling at this hour better have a really good reason. And I picked it up, and it was my mom, and she said, Scott, don't panic. Well, if you want someone to panic, you tell them don't panic. So she said, your dad's had a serious heart attack, and they're airlifting him to University Hospital in Ann Arbor. So Scott hung up the phone, and he asked his roommate if he could have a minute, and he shut the door. Scott says, Not my dad! You can't take my dad! And I was angry. So I called Mike up, and I told him, and Mike said, I'll meet you at the hospital. So I got Shanna, we jumped in the car and drove three hours to Ann Arbor. When I got there, Mike's already talking to my mom about God, and I'm mad. So I went outside, it was cold, and I stood out there fuming, and then the doctor came, and so I ran in, and and the doctor said, well, Scott, 
your dad has had an aortal dissection. 95% of people who have an aortal dissection die instantly. That's when your aorta rips longitudinally. So the blood just gushes out. Like taking a razor blade and cutting the side of a hose. You're dead. Somehow he was alive. And he said there's a 50-50 chance we can save him. I just want you to know that. So he started to leave and Mike grabs his arm and says, wait a minute, we need to pray for you. So Mike bowed his head and said, God, let the doctor, when he gets into, opens up Mr. Lear and gets in there, let him find no aortal dissection. Heal it as if it never happened. Now my mom already thinks this guy's a little weird. The doctor must think this guy's a looney tune. And he prays this. I'm still angry. A few hours later, the doctor came back. said, your dad's in recovery and uh, he's going to be fine. Strangest thing though, when we opened him up, we could not find the aortal dissection anywhere. We have the test showing it's there, but we could not find it. Now, I, Mike, am going to tell you, I have no idea why I prayed that prayer. God gave me the confidence in the words because he wanted to do this. He wanted to show Scott's mom he can do anything. <clears throat> he wanted to show Scott, I don't care what you think, I can do anything. And build Scott's faith so he could do what he's doing today. And he wanted to be glorified. And he was. Now, that doesn't mean to say, hey, if you have someone in a very serious situation, you can pray and everything will be reversed. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is you can pray with confidence for grace and mercy. God happened to give us grace and mercy in that form that day to accomplish that purpose. So we recognize God is sovereign. We pray that God is glorified. We remember specific requests, give specific answers. We pray with persistence and passion. We pray confidently for grace and mercy. And the last thing is, prayer has to be a priority. I'm going to show you three verses very quickly. Mark 1.35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Mark four, Matthew 14.23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, having preached and healed all day, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray, and when the evening came, he was there alone, praying after an exhausting day. Luke six twelve. on one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent all night praying to God. You ever wonder, how did Judas know where to find Jesus when they brought the Romans and the Jews? Because he was praying all night in Gethsemane a lot. That's where I'm going to find him, praying all night in the garden while we sleep. I'm sure that happened. So if we're going to pray like Jesus prayed, we're going to pray, what does Jesus pray? And now we're going to pray like Jesus, then we better realize he prayed early in the morning, he prayed after an exhausting day, and sometimes he prayed all night. <clears throat> Sue and I were at a wedding this fall, and uh, they uh, called for an anniversary dance. 
well, I don't even know what that is. So we got out there, and Sue and I are shuffling around, and, and uh, the DJ says, if you've not been married more than one year, please sit down. Young couple sat down. If you've not been married more than five years, sit down some more. If you've not been married more than 10 years, some more. 20, some more. 30, some more. 40, some more. And finally, he said, if you've not been married more than 45 years, sit down. And finally, I got to sit down. <clears throat> now, let me tell you this. If I were to have you stand, have the uh, worship team come up here and play some soft music, and I were to have you stand, and I said, everybody who hasn't, doesn't pray more than five minutes a day, sit down. Everybody that pr- doesn't pray more than 10 minutes a day, sit down. Everybody that doesn't pray more than 20 minutes a day, sit down. Everybody that doesn't pray more than 30 minutes a day, sit down. How many would be standing? You say, oh, wait a minute, Mike. 30 minutes a day, that's impossible. That's a long time. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, I get it. And I suppose you don't have 30 minutes a day to watch television or 30 minutes a day to spend on Facebook or 30 minutes a day to play video games. By the way, I've won awards for being sarcastic, if you hadn't noticed. There's 1,440 minutes in a day. 30 minutes is 2%. 2%. Now, I'm going to tell you how to do that. And it's easy. Several years ago on January 1st, and every January 1st I get up in the morning, get my computer out, and I set up three spreadsheets. One for spiritual commitments, physical commitments, and office business stuff. And my spiritual, one of my spiritual commitments for that year was pray 30 minutes a day. Now I thought, well, that's a lot. So I'm going to challenge myself. So... <clears throat> Here's what I found out. Following John Piper's uh, example, I prayed in concentric circles. I prayed for my wife, my kids, those eight things, my grandkids. I prayed uh, for my extended family, mother-in-law, sister-in-law, brother-in-law, nieces, sisters. Then I prayed for our spiritual leaders. I prayed for your pastors. I prayed for our pastors, all their kids. <clears throat> and then I prayed for missionaries on a rotating basis, life group on a rotating basis, um, I pray for the people I've shared the gospel with that week. And you know what I find out? I can't get it done in 30 minutes. Can't. If you do those things, you can't either. Now, you can do it. You can pray 30 minutes a day. Now, do you know what would happen? Can you imagine what would happen if everybody in this room prayed 30 minutes a day? You wouldn't be able to hold the new people getting saved in this auditorium if everybody prayed 30 minutes a day. Your lives would change. Your kids' lives would change. Everything you do would change. The people you you impact would change. So I'm going to ask you to do this. I ask you to bow your heads. Now, Scott says you're emphasizing prayer until Easter. That's 70 days from today. And I'm going to challenge you to do this. I'm going to challenge you to say, God, I will pray 30 minutes a day for the next 70 days. Beyond that, I'm not asking a thing. 30 minutes a day for 70 days, and then I'm going to see what you do. Now, if you're willing to do that, you need somebody to pray for you because Satan's going to try and distract you any way he can. 
I would like you to, everybody's eyes closed, raise your hand and say, I'm willing to try to pray 30 days, 30 minutes a day for 70 days. Would you raise your hands? Wow. You know what I'm going to pray? I'm going to pray you do that or God really gets your attention. <laughs>